Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Trading in the financial markets involves a risk of loss. Podcast episodes and other content produced by Chat with Traders are for informational or educational purposes only and do not constitute trading or investment recommendations or advice. The first thing to understand is that the longer you want to hold a trade, in my opinion, the harder it's going to be. Right? And there's a, there's a big industry grow up to sort of say, and a lot of that technical industry says, oh, but it's so much noise in the very, very short term. It's a lot easier to see over the long term. I, I, I'm, I'm calling BS on that, right? If I'm trading for two seconds, okay, it's very easy to know what the risk and reward are likely to be in holding something for two seconds. If I hold trades for a day, three days, the likelihood of something big coming in to hurt me obviously increases. So, Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast. This is the Chat with Traders podcast. I'm Tessa, your co-host, and we are on episode 274. I can't believe we're almost one third of the way into Q1. Think about this. Whether we take action on our goals and dreams or not take any action, time still flies either way. Why wait? Time doesn't wait for us. Let's take action and move forward in our trading journeys. And I mean that, guys. Traders, we're excited to introduce our next guest. But before we do that, every now and then, we have to do a quick reminder that always applies, and I'm sure you already know this, trading carries a high level of risk and you could potentially lose all of your money. The podcast episodes, programs, and other content associated with Chat with Traders are for sharing, for informational, or for educational purposes only, and does not constitute trading or investment recommendations or advice. Therefore, you must do your own due diligence and be responsible for your own trading or investment results. Thank you. Today, Ian interviews Gary Norton. If you're a retail trader, you may not like everything Gary has to say, but Gary has 30 plus years of trading since he was 18. He began early as a market maker, turned professional trader of scalping futures and trading options. He manages a hedge fund, is an author and a mentor to many. I would say he knows a lot about retail traders that we as retail traders don't even know about ourselves. 
A humble beginning as a golfer in the intense trading pits of Japanese warrants was shocking for Gary when he was a teenager. As this volatile market was beginning its meltdown, Gary saw how easily star traders lost immense amounts of money as past overconfidence and sloppy risk control undid their previous gains. This impressed upon Gary the importance of a risk adverse stance to keep himself in the game. Practicing order flow trading hundreds of times per week gives Gary the edge in this lost art. Now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we are so pleased to present Gary Norden from Perth, Australia. Hey, Gary, where are you joining us from today?、Uh, I'm in Perth, Western Australia. Oh, okay. Share with us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and what did you study in school? Yes, I grew up in、uh, just outside London, on the outskirts of London,、uh, in, in England, obviously, not in Australia.、Uh, I studied, I went just through high school,、um, specialized at the end in economics, French, and I decided at 18 to defer my university place. So I was offered places to study、uh, financial economics, business economics. And I decided I wanted to take a year off, deferred my university place, and I was just trying to get a job on a trading desk in London. It was 1989 and trading. There w a s movies and videos and films coming out about trading. I knew one guy from my school had got a job as a, as a broker in the city. It sounded really exciting. And I just decided, let's try and do that for a year. Most of the recruitment agencies just said, you know, you know just never happen. You will not get a job. There's thousands and thousands of young kids. You know, they, Um, only one guy said, Look, you know, I'll, I'll look for you, but he said it'll be hard.、Uh, I got a job、uh, on a trading desk、uh, as a ticket writer、uh, on a Japanese Warren desk, which was the, the boom market at the time.、Um, this was literally a month before the peak of the Nikkei, in, so this was November 1989. I got a job as a ticket writer on a desk, which was the lowest of the lowest of the lowest job on the desk.、Um, but I was really cool with that. I got onto a trading desk. And then、uh, a month later, the market peaked by January, February into, two, you know, into 1990. The Japanese stock market was really starting to, to collapse into February, March. Some of the traders on that desk were getting absolutely smashed, as everybody was in the Japanese market. And、uh, essentially, in, in May 1990, six months after I joined, I got promoted to、uh, be given a trading book of Japanese warrants. So, the, the, the desk structure originally was five traders.、Uh, they had assistants, and then there w a s the two ticket writers. We were the lowest. I got promoted above the assistant. Two of the traders got、uh, demoted to assistants.、Hmm. I got promoted、uh, above the other assistants and above the other ticket rider, which caused all sorts of friction, as you can imagine. I wasn't a very popular person.、Huh. Um, And for a while, I had you know, really almost no idea why it was me they chose, but they, they, they later explained. But so I got given、uh, in May 1990, six months after leaving high school, pretty much, or six months after joining the desk, I was given this、uh, trading book of Japanese equity warrants as the Japanese stock market was collapsing. And obviously, recognized it was a great opportunity. Didn't end up going to university because why am I going to stop this?、Uh, I actually had a, a, a ball. So, I mean, it was crazy. It was an incredible time to learn to trade as a market maker, as well as a market maker of these warrants, and reasonably quickly became the most profitable trader on the desk、um, and, and just loved it. I absolutely just, it was just incredible for a 19 year old to be trading this book against 
some very well-known traders in the city. So that was the start of my trading journey and, you know, did really, you know, well in that market, really enjoyed it. Learning to trade during a crash was actually a great time to learn to trade. And I've got, you know, so many of the lessons I've learned were learned in, in that time. Um, mm. From there, I went down to the, the life floor, the futures exchange. Uh, I was backed by a very, very smart American options trader. He taught me more about options uh, and backed me to become an options market maker in the pit uh, as a local. That was the the most challenging time I've ever had options market making in the pits. The, the, the option market makers back there on the floor are still the best traders I've ever come across and had to compete against um, better than anybody I've come across in an investment bank or even hedge funds. They were amazing. So that was a very challenging time. They were very good traders and we were all competing against each other. Um, from there, I went to uh, head up the options for one of the big UK banks, NatWest, and headed up other banks after that going through for London. So I was in London for about 15 years in the city, traded convertible bonds for ING, um, and then was involved in the transition. So I was an options, options market maker when the floor closed, and that's when I transitioned from away from options onto trading scalping futures in 1999 when life closed. Just curious, uh, how often, if ever, was the pit like how it's portrayed in the movies with floor traders yelling, waving tickets, trying to get orders filled? Uh, yeah, pretty much every day, particularly in the futures market. The options market was a, a little bit different. It, it operated a slightly differently to the futures market, but still, yeah, you know, when there was something that everybody wanted, there would be a lot of screaming, shouting. There's not many of us around, I suppose, left, but there's a lot of misinformation about floor and people think, oh, yeah, it was you know easy to be a local. And it, it, it was a very, very challenging environment. I'll, I'll challenge anybody that said, oh, yeah, well, they just did this and they just did that as if there was some kind of, you know, it was just easy to stand in a pit, you know, make prices and make money. It was incredibly challenging. Mm -hmm. For many reasons, you know, imagine if, you know, every time you're trading, all of your peers around you, they see every trade you're doing, you know, so if as soon as I say, you know, yeah, I'll buy those, you know, if, if that's a stupid trade, everybody sees it, right? Everybody's going to be on your back. So, you know, that that's another kind of pressure that when you're sitting at home clicking, you don't have, but imagine you had 60, 70, 80 people looking over your shoulder every time you traded. The physical aspect of the pit as well, I think people underestimate standing all day long, screaming, shouting. Sometimes you're not able to get out at lunchtime or whatever because it's just too busy. Standing up all day long, the screaming, the yelling, the the spit, the, the noise, the smells, the everything. It, it's, a, it's a challenging environment. It was, you know, and, and frankly, I'm not sure I know any investment bank traders, you know, many others that, that would ever want to come down. They were scared. And, and sometimes investment bank traders would come down and look around the floor. You know, most of them were scared of the place. You know, frankly, they were like, whoa, this is a hype. It's a lot, it's a lot different. And in many respects, a lot easier to sit behind your desk in an investment bank and make the decisions you want in your time, you know, casually or, you know, over phones. I've done that and I found it much easier trading for an investment bank than on the floor. And a lot of people will come down to the floor and just think this is an intimidating atmosphere. And it was. Uh, I found it by far the most challenging and the best traders were down there. There were some awesome traders. The option traders in particular was outstanding down there. So when you were first put in charge of uh, trading warrants, hey, how did you get trained for that? Uh, did they have uh, some coursework that you, that you had to pass or did you have a mentor? I imagine, I mean, you went from writing tickets to suddenly trading warrants. How was that process? How, how is warrants and options as a market maker or trader? Are they similar? 
Similar. So in terms of the, the education, there really wasn't much. But I, I was running tickets and then I kind of got taken under the wing of one of the traders. And I sort of became a de facto assistant to him, even though I wasn't being paid in that way or whatever. But I would get in a lot earlier than my job would require because I was sort of helping him. I watched him. I learned predominantly at that point from other people's mistakes, from watching these other traders struggle. Um, there wasn't much money being made by January, February, March. Everybody, all the other traders were losing money every day, every day. So there was no program for me back then. There was no trader education program. In fact, I started it at that bank. So after I became profitable and because the others were struggling, I would be running um, sessions you know, in, in our lunch breaks. So our market was closed for two hours every day at lunchtime. I would be running sessions trying to teach these guys you know, the, the things that I was doing and seeing because I was making money and they weren't but there was nothing i i really just i was just thrown in and because of the way it happened to me because i was promoted above all of these other people um they all wanted me to fail i was given basically three months and uh i, I mean people probably wouldn't believe some of the things that were done to me but my everybody on that desk wanted me to fail because they just believed i i shouldn't have been given that chance there were other people been there a lot longer at and I was the most junior guy on that desk. So uh, I knew I had three months. I knew that this was it for me. Um, and so uh, really the way to learn was what has everybody else been doing wrong? There was very little of, of use that I could take out of that, um, you know, six months that I'd had because, yeah, people were losing. So I learned that, yeah, learning by people's mistakes and, and seeing people's mistakes actually is a good way to learn. You, you'd see a lot. Now, I was lucky when I went down to the floor, I had a really good mentor in options. Um, so a very good uh, trader from the US. Um, Wade was a fantastic trader. I really didn't get to trade enough with him. I really wish I could have. When I went in the pit, I ended up with someone else supervising me and who, who wasn't really helping me. And again, that was that was a struggle. It's very important to have someone guiding you, mentoring you as you're going through that. It's one mm -hmm. thing to teach someone something. Um, but you really need people guiding you as you're progressing. Otherwise, it's 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 a lot harder. You mentioned uh, the other traders were making mistakes and you wanted to avoid those mistakes. So share with us, what were uh, some of the mistakes that you discovered that they were making? Yeah, I think the, the, the key one was, was in, particularly in that environment of a, a collapsing uh, equity market, uh, was to cut quickly. Um, and to not worry about a small loss, you know, or so-called small losses. The, the the numbers at that time that you could lose or make on these warrants was ridiculous. It was a it was a crazy market, but you could lose five ten thousand dollars in on one warrant in in two seconds. And we were all market making like one hundred and twenty. Uh, making prices in hundreds of these, making hundreds of trades a day. If you got this wrong, you know, you could make, you know, if you go back to eight, you know, 1990, losing hundreds of thousands of dollars was a serious amount. So the first thing was cut quickly. Um, from a market making perspective, one of the key lessons I learned was it's uh, very common for market makers to make uh, the market price. Okay, so if you're not sure about you know what what the market what what the price what price you should make, you're kind of thinking what's everybody else making, and you make the market price. Um, I, I worked out no, I need to be better than that. So I, I I basically would always have a slight view on my warrants, which ones I wanted, which ones I was happy to be long, were happy to be short, and only those that I had no, no idea about or no I had no real 
view on, I'd make the market price. But if you made the market price, if you went along with the market, you'd get screwed with the market back then. So when the market got hit, you got hit. So I had to think, okay, there's something happening in this warrant right now. Clearly the price is about to change. I've got to be good enough to make a price either way. Um, and, you know, I, I, I told a story on, on my YouTube channel about what I consider to be the day that I became a trader. What I mean by that was the day that I really started to figure out what I needed to do. And that was the first day that I decided I'm not going to be tossed around in the tide of this market where warrants are going up and down and down and up all day long. I'm going to make my view. I think this is happening with this thing. I'm going to make my view and I'm going to stand or die on the fact if, if I'm good at this job as a trader, then I'm going to be making the right view on this. And if I if I think this warrant should be going up, and it's going down. And that's what happens every time I make a decision. I'm clearly not cut out to be this market maker. I was prepared to, for that to happen. I was prepared to test myself to that level that if it didn't work, it didn't work. It wasn't for me. But what I what I hated after the first couple, you know, month of trading was I hated being tossed around with everybody else where these warrants are being up and down. I'm like, I can't, it's, it's, you can't make money doing that. You have to say, I think this warrant is cheap or expensive. I then went out and learned. So we we luckily hired a salesman who came from Merrill Lynch. Um, and Merrill's were on the on the cusp at that time of the new sort of ideas. So the warrant market was one of the first markets to uh, implement um, implied volatility and, and people using them to trade volatility as opposed to most people were trading warrants just for direction like they would options. Led by uh, really a guy called Dr. Um, Kevin Connolly who was at Cresval at the time. He was one of the sort of forefathers of this and particularly incredible convertible bonds as well. Um, trading implied volatility. I, I learned from the Merrill's guys what this meant. Uh, what was implied volatility, you know, how the Delta hedge, all those sorts of things. What was a cheap option, expensive option? It turns out a cheap or expensive option on an implied vol basis was very different from how the rest of the market saw cheap and, and, and expensive. And that gave me edge. It surprised me how few traders in my market were skilling up on that. And so, again, just learning what's new, what, what's other people doing, that gave me a massive heads up. Mm. Um, and it, it surprised me that you know, my, my peers on my in other banks, uh, you know, I was trading against about eight or nine other investment banks, other people trading the same warrants as me. Most of them didn't know this stuff. Yeah, I'm just wondering, uh, you're uh, the other traders that you were uh, trading with and against, uh, didn't they have to have uh, some sort of uh, basic education? Uh, I would think that uh, cutting your losses would be, you know, market making 101. Uh, that they would learn. And here you are a much younger person there. You seem to have the uh, initiative to uh, be hungry to learn. Was that not the case for these other traders? And 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 was that um, largely, I mean, were they just given free reign to trade without getting much of an education? Uh, they were back then. They were back then. They didn't have much trading education and um, they didn't it's, it really continued to surprise me that traders would lose money and, and just not learn. And I, I was giving these sort of education courses at lunchtime to my peers. So, for example, about implied volatility, what it means. And they just – so many traders didn't seem interested. They thought it was too hard. The cutting losses thing always – we were only – after a short while, the bank clamped down on our positions and we were – um, before that, they could have pretty much whatever positions they want. You're trading 120. You're making markets in 120 warrants. You're probably going to have positions in 60, 70 of them at least, just inventory, just that you're carrying, right, just because you're making prices. They really clamped down on that. We had 
much tighter limits only allowed like 200 warrants maximum on any one position um and so one thing i learned was that the other traders essentially ended up with the positions that the market gave them the ones that were too expensive to cut when for example they were hit so they'd make a price they got hit on their bid um, the market they found was like now a point away, two points away. There was they didn't want to cut five thousand or seven thousand dollars on that, you know, on that trade. So they were the, they ended up with the positions the market gave them. Whereas I was of the view I would rather cut five thousand on that um, than cut two thousand on a smaller one if I liked it. So they were very taking a short term view. Today, if I cut that, it's going to cost me money. Whereas I would say, well, no, I think that one's going to cost me even more tomorrow and the day after. Um, and a lot of traders struggle with that. They'll take the, the, the easiest decision, right, which is the, the lowest P&L. So today they were like, yeah, my P&L is low. But then they were locking themselves into negative P&L every day. And what I found was by cutting the ones I, I didn't want this one, I did not want this trade. Yeah, it was a 6,000, 10,000, whatever it was lost at the moment. I'd rather take that now because otherwise that if that stays on my book, um, I'm going to have losses for days and days because I don't like it and I suspect it's going to be bad. And what I ended up with was a book with only good positions on it. So essentially, even I, I could then afford to cut some of the big loss-making trades during the day because everything else on my book was doing all right. It took a while to obviously to turn the book around. I inherited an absolute shambles of a trading book. But yeah, it, it continues to surprise me that traders would always make those short-term decisions. Um, oh, this is going to cost me too much now. And I was like, no, no, I, I can, I, you know, I'm taking a view of my whole book and I'm looking ahead next week. And look, that, that's partly the reason why none of those traders had a long career in the industry, right? None of those guys back then ended up continuing to trade you know, 10 years later. And that's uh, not a surprise to me. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the US markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So um, of the star traders that you did meet and see, how often did they lose their edge? One would think that, uh, you know, what they learn the basics early on and they keep to a certain discipline that uh, they can develop like you did. And uh, so what causes them to lose their edge? I think and and, and in a, a lack of humility is, is, is probably the, the biggest killer for traders, right? That, that view that you've, you're good. So these guys had one of the big differences between me and them was 
these guys have been trading all during the bull market, all through the bull market in Japan. And they were always scared of getting caught short on warrants because like, well, this is, you know, this is going to turn around any minute. And they were essentially trading from the past. Now, I had the luck or the fortune that I never traded the good times. I, I was, I never had that. I never had the benefit of trading the good times. I only traded the, the tough times, the crash. So I was not here waiting for this bull market to return or anything like that. And, and just to be able to trade, and I talk a lot to traders about being in the now. Forget about what happened in a year ago. Right now, make the right decision now for the current market. Believe it can turn any minute or it could, you know, but just trade the current times well. The traders that I know that have done continues and some of those Warren traders at other banks that, you know, I, uh, you know, continue to be very good traders. The ones that, you know, learned those lessons and just said, now this is game off. What I've done for the last five years that's made me money, you know, that, that's gone. That's gone. It's a different market now. I have to change. Those guys that did that could transition well. As I've said, the option traders on the floor, um, on the life floor, their skill set was so strong that, you know, many of them are still trading well today. And I, I you know, there's a, options, obviously very popular product. I still don't think I've seen any people out there in the social media world and options that have the skill set of those guys that uh, I was trading against on the floor. And some of, and it, you know, really, if you have the a basic, a good basic knowledge, and the humility to understand that you know I need to continue to evolve with the markets, um, then you have the ability potentially to, to keep going. But like everything, I think humility is just such a huge thing. Just to say, yeah, you know what? And every day I just remind myself this thing could do anything today. Because even though, the, like for example, back then in the Warren market, the Nikkei was collapsing, you would get days of massive rallies where the um, Ministry of Finance or Bank of Japan would basically essentially get the, the local banks to buy up the shares, right? And just, you know, today you can't sell, you're going to buy. And the market would – so you wasn't just about, oh, you just short and make money. It wasn't like that. There would be some, you know, huge uh, rallying days in there. So you really had to be able just to be on a dime in this market and just every day see what, what is today, what can I do? Um, not think too far ahead. Um, and and just trade the best you could on that day. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you were trading the warrants and the options, were you involved what is called order flow trading at that time, or how how did how did you get into order flow trading if you weren't already doing that? Yeah, essentially, market making is probably the you know the the essence of order flow trading. So uh, I, as you know, as well as holding positions in warrants, my main job was as a market maker. I had to make prices and obligated to make prices to the eight, nine, 10 other investment banks. Um, and as well to our clients who were funds, pension funds, hedge funds from around the world. So that's where I first started to learn the skill set of how to make prices what to look for, how, who you want to trade against. And, and these things are still, I still using today. So the Norton method still incorporates these ideas. Who do I want to trade against? And who, when I trade against, do I'm saying, I want to get out of this pretty quickly. Um, learning the difference between what's a good trade and what's a bad trade from an order flow perspective and understanding that quickly. So as a market maker, you can't sit there and think oh, an hour later, oh, yeah, actually that wasn't a good trade, let's get out of it. You have to pretty much recognize straight away if you can recognize as soon as you're filled, this is a good trade or this is not a good trade, I'm, I'm off here, that then you need to get in or out quickly based on that. And that's something that, you know, that, that skill set, which I think a lot of, if you're an algorithmic market maker like today, you probably don't learn those skills as much. So those of us that grew up at that time, we, you know, I didn't have algos helping me. I couldn't cross 
spread hedge my portfolio or my trade or something else. I was just in and out of warrants all day long. So I had to learn some skills to recognize some of these things, which continued, continued a bit on the floor to a different degree and then continued into, you know, other things, uh, even to today. And I think some of those skills have been lost because market makers are not being trained anymore. Um, because it's all a computerized situation and there's a lot of confusion, misinformation about what market makers should do. So as those skill sets have been lost, I actually think some of those skills have become more valuable. Yeah, I think, you know, learning how to get in and out quickly. So all the market making, I was a market maker of options and and warrants and uh, all of those taught me various skills that I've then used and laws and rules that you need to apply if you're going to trade order flow. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the loss of uh, skills and uh, and how algos today are doing the market making. Uh, does that imply that the humans today are mostly kind of caretakers of the algos that they don't really learn uh, the the mechanics like you like you had to learn the mechanics of it right before algos, yeah. but today they don't need to do that. Um, they can trade slightly differently. So so for example, if we take options market makers today okay so when i was an options market maker in the Euromark or bund pit or footsie pit okay i just when i got filled you know i was generally pretty much trading the front month which is what most option traders were then and so we were just you know how do we spread our risk across we spread it across the strikes of the month we were trading you know some of the bigger guys at the bigger uh, some of the banks that had market makers they would spread across a few months but most of us traded front month if you look at it today so we had to have a skill set because we didn't have many options to to, to hedge right we had to have a skill set in terms of making prices seeing which were good to buy and sell because we didn't have many options but today if you're an options market maker you can spread across all months you can spread across different products so you can be trading you know spx options and you'll be spreading those against the individual stocks of you know you can those with high correlations you'll be spreading those against potentially nq or dow jones options and the other es products that are available you know there's you know a number of variants of uh, options on the index so you have so many different ways of spreading out uh, your risk that it's a slightly different game now right i mean it, it's it's the same but it's it's different it, it's in some sense you would say it's easier than what we had to do so because we had just trading one month in one way we we had to learn certain skill sets to get ourselves out of trouble quickly we didn't have the options that are available to to market makers now to spread in terms of sort of equities futures market making there's there's not i wouldn't call the, the people in the future space market makers the algos um, they're high frequency traders, but I wouldn't, you know, they, they kind of operate in a market making way, but not not necessarily. Certainly the ones that I've spoken to, I think there's this mis- misinformation about what market making is and they're trading in that way. They can still be profitable potentially, but a lot of that's just based on on, on fees rather than on, on, on edge. Um, in terms of equities, again, slightly different, right? Um, in the way that they market make. And again, they don't necessarily have to have some of the skills that we had to but as as someone training for myself in a market making capacity now uh, if i was scalping futures for example i still don't have the options that those market making firms have I, i'm i'm i've only got myself so i still need to use those skills that i had before because i'm not spreading a, across different formats and trading in fractions of a, you know in 0.003 of a second or whatever so uh, those those skills are still needed for me 
in one of your previous interviews, um, you talked about when doing order flow trading, that one of the objectives is to look for weak players to pick off. How exactly do you do that? I mean, what does that look like on your screen when you're seeing a, a list of ass and the various sizes and a list of bids and various sizes and, and the volumes, you know, flooding in? How how do you identify and pick off the weak players? Yeah, uh, you're, you're right. It is important to be able to try and identify who you want to trade against. You're not always going to get that right. And so the, the key then is, to know as quickly as possible when you weren't filled by the people that you wanted to be filled by. And then you get out, of course, right? So first identify who's playing and identify who are the weakest players, right? Now in the futures market that we trade, it, it's very easy to work out who the futures, the weakest players are. They're the retail traders. Um, they've always been the weakest players. And unless they change their trading habits, they're probably always going to be the weakest players. How do they trade? Most of them use some form of technical analysis, right? So we can look at that. We can look at the weaknesses of those technical of technical analysis, and there's many of them. And from that, we can work out that there's certain situations where these traders are going to be slower than us, or potentially you'd be trading yeah, a little bit behind where the market probably is right now. Um, so based on that, there's certain times where we think that they're more likely to make mistakes and uh sometimes you know you just have to listen to retail traders and and you you know when they're when they're making these mistakes but essentially that that's what it comes down to so um and if i get filled so there's there's various ways as soon as you're filled uh you know i give my there's a checklist i give right so as soon as i filled you can sort of mentally go through the checklist did all these things happen yes great it's a good trade then that's fine if some of them happened and some of them didn't then again, as soon as you're filled, so I don't have to wait 10 seconds, a half a minute, three minutes. As soon as I'm filled, I should know with this checklist, which is based on you know all of the experience I've learned over the years, with the checklist, okay, everything was good. Or if it, too many things were not good on this, then I wasn't filled by the people that I wanted to be filled by. At that moment, maybe a bigger player came in. In this case, get out. Whatever it is, just, just get out. So there's certain ways that you'll know when you're filled. Again, going back over you know all of my 30 plus years there's there's times you'll know that was just not that wasn't the right way um so identifying when they're likely to make a mistake which is generally based on the way they're trading and then recognizing as well that sometimes you won't get it right and therefore as quickly as possible if you can recognize as soon as you're filled that this wasn't great for whatever reason there could be a number of factors if you can recognize that quickly then the next step is okay just get me out so while you were market making, uh, did you trade or invest your own money? And was that allowed? And if so, what kind of assets did you uh, trade or invest in? In terms of investing or? Either either one did you, uh, for your own accounts. Uh, okay, you... so, yeah, so when I was a market maker of options on the floor, I was trading my own account as a market maker. So that was as a local. Oh. Um, and subsequently, when the floor closed um, and I, I was scalping futures, I was scalping futures as a local for my own money. Mm. Um, in investment banks, when I worked, so I, was, you know, I worked in a number of investment banks as a senior trader. Um, no, I, I, and I will say this, I, I am not uh, an investor. Um, I, I find it very hard to be an investor. And I've always said this, I'm, I, I'm a trader and I know that. And um, And in banks, you can't really, it's very difficult to, to have trading, you have to get everything approved when you're trading in an investment bank. 
So it was just too hard. I didn't like it. I, I like to concentrate on my trading. So yeah, on the floor for a number of years, I was trading my own account um, and as well for myself when the market's been computerized. But when I trade for a bank, no, I, I don't really get involved in investing. Um, it's not mm-hmm. my thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your book called Technical Analysis Exposed, um, you mentioned in there that the rise of automation has led to a decline of knowledge and trading skills. And I'm just wondering, you know, how is this possible when your home-based trader today has access to more education and tools than when you first started as a teenager, uh, including like level two data and, and others? Uh, isn't that enough for us all? The access to data is is excellent, is much better than they had before. But just because there's more, there's more information out there, but if the majority of it is noise, it's not helpful. And that's the case. Uh, I think personally that it's harder than ever for traders, new traders to find out what's really going on. And I was just interested, I think it was uh, Cliff Asnes recently from uh, AQR, is it the hedge fund? who said that he also, I think he was saying that skills are being lost and it's harder than ever to find good information. There's more information out there, but it's harder to disseminate, you know, and I was punching some stuff into, you know, even to chat GPT uh, a few months ago, I did this on my YouTube channel as an options question. I gave it, it got it completely wrong. Right. I asked it two different variants. I can't remember what the question was, but they were were two completely different questions and it came up with the same answer. It could not have been the same answer, but it's scarring the internet. And of course, there's a lot of junk on the internet. So how do you get through that junk? If I think about traders of my ilk from my generation, we none of us use technical analysis, right? So none of us. Uh, and, and, you know, we saw it around. We might have tried it for a bit. I did, you know, go on some TA courses and learn it. And it just didn't fit with how we saw markets. So traders who grew up and, and were trading in the 80s and 90s, pit traders, for example, you couldn't, you know, you were just in there with a pencil and paper. You had to have other ways of trading. I think one of the things is that the technical analysis traders on this internet era, they, they're by far the most popular out there, right? They, 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 if you're going to look up trading education, that's what you're going to get. Now, for traders of my ilk, my generation, and my training, we think that's garbage education, frankly. I mean, we, we don't agree with it. We don't agree with the, the assumptions of technical analysis. We don't think it works. But, you know, for our generation, if you would have spoken to professional traders 20, 30 years ago, we would have said, stay away from it. But now, you know, there's a, if you're going to start trading, almost certainly that's where you're going to start, isn't it? If you're going to start trading as a retail trader, look up trading education, you're going to get some form of TA. I see. So why I why is so. that? Why, why, why do you think that, um, why don't they, do, uh, does a community teach traders uh, the same way that, uh, that you learned? Uh, first, yeah, there's a number of reasons, um, but I call it in, in, in our other book, An End to the Ball, I call it the financial junk food industry. And I call it that because one day my, my son was about nine or 10 and he asked me this question. We were talking about, we didn't want to go to a certain junk food restaurant. He said, well, dad, why do restaurants make food that's bad for people? Right. I might want to use the word allegedly in there, but let's just say, uh, why do they make food? I said, well, because that's what people want. They want convenience. So if retail traders want to learn a trading style where they can trade for 10 minutes analysis a day, you know, simple levels, blah, 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 the there'll be an industry that will grow up to give them that. Whereas if the trading industry says, 
look, actually, it's a very tough business. You're going to need to spend hours behind a computer. It's high focus, high intensity. It's difficult. It's tough. And most people will fail. Um, this is the other method. It's, it's a very difficult method. It's, you know, it's a, a lot of focus, a lot of intensity requires a lot of training, um, not about prediction, all this sort of thing. People are like, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. I don't want that. And I, I've seen in my time, I've seen, for example, futures sort of prop shops pivot away from more robust training focused at professionals and building their trading room to education that's more focused at retail traders. Uh, and it's clear the difference and why, because that's what the retail traders want. If you want to make money in, a, in business, you've got to give people what they want. Unfortunately, what a lot of traders want is not good for them. That's um, So uh, that's, that's my view. So there's a lot of information out there, yes, but I don't necessarily think things are getting better. I don't see any, I don't see any evidence that with all of this new information and platforms that the success rate of retail traders has improved. I don't see that at all. I don't see them getting close to the success rate of floor traders, for example, or people like that. So um, you have to start asking why. Why are they not improving? Because mm -hmm. some of the stuff they're being given is not does not have edge, is not helpful to them. So as a market maker, my understanding is that you hold on to positions for just seconds. You're just looking to flip it as fast as possible. But what about for the many uh, traders who don't have the time or desire to just concentrate on just order flow type of trading and want to take on a swing positions, say that go out for days, weeks, or months. Do you have any advice for them uh, with regards to, you know, it, are there any technical indicators that can provide an edge? Answer won't be popular, obviously. Um, the first thing to understand is that the longer you want to hold a trade, in my opinion, the harder it's, it's going to be, right? Um, and there's a it's a big industry grow up to sort of say, and a lot of that technical industry says, oh, but it's so much noise in the very very short term. It's a lot easier to see over the long term. I, I, I'm I'm calling BS on that, right? Um, if I wanted, if I'm trading for two seconds, okay, it's very easy to know what the risk and reward are likely to be in holding something for two seconds. If you want to hold something for three weeks. What's the risk reward of that trade? What could it get to? Where could it? it's a lot harder? If I want to hold it for three years, it's even harder again. So, and other things, for example, if I hold a trade for two seconds, the likelihood of me getting burnt by a big trader, smashed by, you know, taken out by a big trader is going to be the smallest it can be. That's why when I trade for myself, I prefer to hold trades for two seconds. If I hold trades for a day, three days, the likelihood of something big coming in to hurt me is obviously increases. So, when I'm trading with my own money, risk is is the number one thing. I can't, I'm not trading for a bank. I can't afford to get smashed and keep coming back. It's too hard. So uh, smaller trades to me make more sense trading with my own money. Trade for, you know, three, four, five ticks and do that 50 times a day, right? That seems to be to fit the risk profile of me. My view is for traders that in this industry, you should either try to trade in a professional kind of a way, which is generally a high frequency way. Most of the professional, if you look at the hedge funds or whatever, will seek high frequency methods. There's a number of benefits to high frequency. Um, either try and trade in that way, or frankly, probably best not trade trading at all. Uh, and, and I'm comfortable saying that to people, you know, that that might be the best way. Other ways will carry a lot of risk. And frankly, if you ask me what tools are the best for carrying a trade for a week, three weeks, four weeks, I've never seen consistently 
lots of people do that in any way. And the industry itself, look at how the professionals work. Even the biggest multi-billion dollar hedge funds are looking to trade for small amounts in high frequency ways. There's a reason for that. There's a mm-hmm. reason for that. It, 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 it's, I just think the benefits are just so much clearer. And if you can't trade that way, then I think you should really, you know, reevaluate, you know, what, what you should do. That's my opinion. I'm, I'm never someone, and it's, again, it's going to be an unpopular statement, but I, I, I don't, I'm not here to, to sell trading. I love trading. I love this industry. It's the greatest challenge out there, you know, but I, I'm not one that says, oh, it's an easy route to wealth and you should all take it up. It's, it's tough. Tough business, so trade it in the right way, or perhaps not trade it. Basically, uh, have you considered automating your order flow trading? Uh, yes, I've considered it. It's very complex to do it, and everybody that, that's a programmer says, "Oh, I can do it." Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of my students at the moment is is trying that, and it, yeah, what I've seen, like he's because he sends me his videos that my students do, and I can have a look at it. It looks nothing like what what the rest of us do and it is very difficult it's there's Mm. there's a lot of nuances to this um and essentially the key component of order flow trading uh, is trading in the now okay so trading based on what you see now so that means that one of the problems with algorithms and automation is you know it has to keep changing as things are changing as order flow traders we're as much trading liquidity as we are trading uh, price. In fact, we're not really price traders. We're more liquidity traders. Um, so therefore, you've got to, you know, that's continually changing. So you, you've got to, you're continually just changing what you're doing. You, it's 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 very rare that you're going to do the same trade type of trade that you know moment after moment. So it's just constantly changing, and the information that you might use where you place the order, all these things could change with every trade you do. So that makes it pretty complex. Yeah, well, speaking of uh, high frequency, I'd like to talk about uh, the high frequency traders, the HFTs, in Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, um, which was about a Canadian mutual fund manager who discovered how his fund was being front run by HFTs, which resulted in very poor fills. Uh, Lewis seems to imply through his book that the market is rigged for larger investors because HFTs often physically located very close to the exchange can spot orders coming through and more quickly buy shares ahead of these large orders only to flip them moments later at a higher price back to the to these institutions are hfts a significant problem to worry about okay this is there's a lot to go through there as well so good question um Firstly, since the HFT Flash Boys book has come, a lot of HFTs have closed. Um, there was a, a high point for that industry, and then they sort of merged, a number of them closed. Of course, there's still some available. Secondly, the, the ones that are still trading, uh, generally operating around the equity space, um, where they can trade in larger size. So for me, my students will will look at futures. Um, futures markets, which are often too small, but there are still a lot of HFT or some HFTs playing in that space. But a couple of things. So you, you've hit on a really interesting point there. A lot of people talked about HFTs as market makers, and you, you mentioned the word front running there, which is a really classic. I mean, most people, you ask them about what market makers do, they think front run. And there are a lot of HFTs that are programmed in that way. Market making is not about front running. That That is just a small part of it. 
And that's why I said like the skills are lost. So these firms can do that. They can do that more in equities than they probably can in futures. Why? Because there's not a lot of big orders. If you look at the NQ futures, for example, it's twos, ones, threes, twos, ones, threes. Which one of those orders are you going to front run? You know, you don't front run a three lot order, right? You'll front run a big order in an equity. Fine. Okay, that's fine. But market making is more than front running. In fact, market making is about filling. Front running is about not filling, right? It's about jumping in front of a big order. Market making, your whole point of, is that you can fill big orders. And that's to me, when, you, when you're market making, if you're a market maker, not just a front runner, you're able to fill those big orders, not just front run them. And if you are a designated market maker, you will have to. Someone wants to buy 50,000, 100,000 shares. Can you fill that order? If you can do that, then you're a market maker. If you're not, if you're just front running, you're not a market maker. So they're not actually acting as market makers. They're, they're just acting in a different way. So I want to just clear up the confusion about front running. That's not market making. But in that sense, if am I worried about them? Well, firstly, HFTs in the futures market, which is where we're looking at, they're trading in such a short time frame, I can't even see them. They're probably largely trading against each other because they're the only ones trading in that time frame. If I'm only trading two lots in and out of NQ, ES, because we are generally small traders in and out, I'm not worried about them front running me, right? Because there's nothing to front run. Another key point about trading is I'm not trying to build edge over the, the market or over everybody. There are certain people, and in futures markets, there's enough of them who trade in a certain way, I only need to know my edge over those and be able to pick them off enough. That should be fine. And then on the other occasions when maybe an HFT or a bigger trade or someone else has filled me and I didn't want it, I'll just get out of the trade, right? I'm just going to get out. I'm never going to be obviously get near 100%. From my perspective, in equity markets, yeah, I, 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 I've been asked a lot, would, does my strategy or Norda method, would that apply to equities? In theory, it does, right? In theory, the market making styles and all that would work. But I think it's more complex in equities. And one of the reasons, for example, is in a number of equity markets around the world, orders are routed through a market maker. It's going to be very hard to act in a market making style when your order is being routed through someone else. So the ability to trade on an exchange directly against other traders, which futures gives us, is why I think futures is the, uh, the best product for traders to trade. They're the fairest product for small traders. So I, I love futures um, in that way. I, I, in theory, it can be applied to equities as well. In reality, in many markets, I think it'll be more, more difficult. Great. I'd like to uh, go back just a couple of years to the meme stock craze, uh, where some of us experienced this meme stock frenzy with GameStop, AMC, uh, among others, seeing stratospheric gains. As an options maker, were you surprised at just how high the implied volatilities got on these meme stocks? And uh, did these prices fit into the traditional option pricing models like Black-Scholes? Did, did the system work well during that crazy time? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, the meme stocks was, a, was an interesting time. A lot of talk about, you know, gamma squeezes, things like that. Um, there certainly wasn't the, the response from the market makers was as you would probably expect. So the implied vol got really high because once they realized what the game was, they got, the market makers are going to be the first to respond to that. You know, market makers always generally have to be the, the, the first to spot where there's a problem and the first to react. So they acted well. They effectively said to these people, if you're going to buy these things, we're going to make you pay for them, right? And they made them pay for them. And one thing to understand here is that market makers can short out of the money calls. The market can rally 
Okay, they can short loss, the market can rally, and the market maker can win out of that. You can't, you know, so um, one of the, one actually, that's a strategy a lot of market makers want. They, they like being short call options, and in the meme stocks, it was mainly short. The problem will come if it goes through your strike too much, but selling out of the money call options, particularly for that higher price, if the, and in fact, as a market maker, if you sell those very expensive call options, and the market falls, that's your biggest weakness there, most likely. Why is that? Because when you sell the calls, you buy stock. Oh, to and cover. Because uh -huh. the, yeah, mm -hmm. and because mm -hmm. they're very expensive, your delta is going to be too high, so you're buying too much stock, effectively. So the hardest thing there as a market maker is to work out what deltas you really want to be on. And I suspect some market makers may have sold options on a certain implied vol but perhaps hedged on a different delta I, I don't know i wasn't an options market maker at that point but the options market makers responded as we would expect them to be um they repriced those those options um and we never heard any um mention really of market makers struggling there right we, there was a lot of talk about gamma squeezes and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze um perhaps which you know from a a direction perspective, but not from a PL perspective. We didn't, I think the market makers, and I, I heard on a podcast, I think it may have been this one, a uh, head of one of the option market makers saying it, it wasn't that bad for them. You know, they, they weren't getting, uh, they, if you know, one of the classic things about market making is this if you know something's going to happen, you plan for it. it. It's it's a bit like saying, oh, the week before, you know, most years, most weeks of the year, supermarkets might sell 10 turkeys. And then the week before Thanksgiving, they they sell millions of turkeys. Aren't they going to be short turkeys? Well, guess what? Because they know it. They buy millions of turkeys the week before, right? Or the two weeks before. As a market maker, if you know something's going to happen, if you see something's going to happen, you prepare for it. I always laugh at some of the analysis of options market makers out there at the moment. Or, you know, if this happens, they're going to lose this. No, if this happens, they, they know that, right? They know that already. And if you know a risk, you can plan for a risk. So um, I suspect that once market makers realized what the game was, they just priced up the options. They priced them very expensively. It was going to be quite hard to make money ultimately from them. And uh, look, it was an interesting time, right? And initially, like always, when there's something, the, the first people to, to, to get involved made money, the last people to get involved got smashed. Mm -hmm. that, that's just classic, right? Once the market makers readjusted, the last people came into that type of trade got hurt. Um, there was not, there was no money in it for them, uh, and it actually became very difficult. Now, in terms of the model itself, any market maker of options will tell you the Black Shoals model is nothing more than a guide. It kind of is a guide that tells us also we have this idea of what a delta is. So, if I'm trading with someone else and we want to do a delta neutral trade, it gives us a kind of a guide of what a delta might be. Although I might have it on a different implied vol in different delta, but every options market maker knows there's flaws in that model. Every option market maker will tweak around it. And every market maker knows it's a guide. So, and at extremes, that model is just, yeah, it's it's really just a loose guide, uh, particularly when you get to like the 200s, 300s uh, implied vol that we got in those meme stocks. You really have to be very careful. It's it's very difficult to hedge. If you looked at that point, for example, on these calls, they you know, almost all were, even a call option was way out of the money, was given a 45 delta, 50, I mean, everything at 200, 300 vol. It's got like a 40, 50% chance of finishing in the money or 50 delta. It's like, oh, that's crazy. That's what it is. And at that point, they are very difficult to trade. A real specialist. And again, a bit like zero day to expiry options. Anything at extremes and zero day have extreme gammas. 
anything at extremes are very difficult to trade. And the reality is most traders should stay away from them. During this time with the meme stocks, um, I noticed that the uh, the short interest uh, just went through the roof and a lot of talk about uh, creating these short squeezes and uh, the longs would be screaming, oh, oh, shorts have to cover. And I'm just wondering, you know, when old short participants could be covering uh, while new deeper pocketed shorts enter later with a substantive position sizes, you know, that could still be small relative to the overall position. Uh, overall portfolio. As a market maker, can you see data to indicate the average weighted price of the shorts to help you uh, determine what is the likelihood of a real short squeeze um, taking this thing to the moon? Uh, so firstly, firstly, I'm not an options market maker at the moment. So for the hedge fund, I design option trades, but I'm not a market maker. So I don't need to drill down into the data that much. And for the trades that we do, I don't drill down to that degree. Uh, secondly, as a market maker, your main job is is to make prices, right? And then position yourself. So you're trading in there now to position yourself. So the modern options market maker has so many ways of diversifying their risk that I think the talks about squeezes and that, I, I just think that they, and because of the volumes themselves. So what's your best way of diversifying risk as an option market maker? It's just to trade out. Now, if you're trading a product that trades three times a day, okay, you're going to have a hard time. And there's, you know, there's five option market makers. You're going to have a hard time trading out of risk. But we're talking about products that are trading thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times a day. That that's your way of trading out. Uh, option market makers, technically, most of the time, are trying to trade out of all risks, gamma risk, as much as they can across spreading out. So. I think a lot of the discussion personally, and again, an options market maker guy would be the right one, but I think that a lot of people's views about what their positions are, I think are misguided. I don't think they have near the risk that people think. And again, I'll be happy to be corrected. Um, I'll give an example about this type of thing. So uh, in the options world, there's every quarter, every, end of every quarter, there'll be a number of accounts out there talking about the JP Morgan collar trade. Okay, the JP Morgan fund collar trade that happens at the rollover at the end of every quarter. Now, a year and a half ago, there was a lot of misinformation about that, about the delta effect of that. All right. And that got that was big for a while. Oh my goodness, this is going to create huge delta effect. And it turned out no, it didn't because it was delta neutral. So we already saw that there was some misinformation out there. But you'll have things like now, I, I, I laugh at this, but there are some, you know, quite well-known uh, people in this space will say things like, right, this. 30,000, 40,000 of these collars to be rolled over. Market makers, you know, are short these strikes and long these strikes from that collar trade. And, you know, my most obvious thing I'm going to say here about that is if you think the market makers three months after the original trade still have the same exposure to that those strikes as they had three months ago, you, you're dreaming. I mean, like there's no way. They would have traded in and out of those strikes thousands of times. The first thing is to try and get rid of strike risk. So there's still a lot of people talk about, oh, yeah, well, market makers are long this strike as we get to the end of that collar. No, they they were. They did that three months ago. But three months later, how many times have those strikes traded? And you'll get situations, for example, where the market maker may have traded you know, the out-of-the-money call strike, for example. Uh, perhaps the index has rallied sharply, which happens quite a bit, right? We've had a you know eight, nine, ten percent rally in that quarter. Um, those call options have gone from being in the money call options to now, sorry, out of the money call options. They're now in the money, which means they're technically functioning now as an out of the money put option. 
which gives the market maker a way, another way of exiting that strike risk because now the puts are trading, whereas when they were an out of the money call, in the money put, the put would not have traded much. But now the puts are trading more. He can get out, he or she can get out of the, that strike a lot easier. There's simply no way the option market makers still have the same exposure to those strikes as they had three months ago. Yet that's what the commentary is. For in fact, some of the you know the more popular accounts in the options and, and volatility space, watch out for market makers on these strikes. I'm like, so there's a lot. What I'm saying is essentially, sorry, I'm probably waffling. Is there's a lot of misinformation about how market makers are positioned. A lot mm -hmm. of talk about their weaknesses, and I've always you know I have a saying about large traders. If you can understand, if if you can understand the positioning of these big traders. Either you're wrong or they're rubbish. Hmm. Yeah, cool. oh, um, and in the case of these option market makers, they're not rubbish. They're very good. And I think I think they're quite happy for the misinformation, of course. I think that that's why they don't dispel it, right? So something like what I've just explained with the options is a very easy thing to dispel for anyone who's been an option market maker. Yet that's still a very widely accepted view that the options market makers still have that position three months later. Why don't they dispel it? Because they're happy for, of course they are. If you're trading in a big trading book of any kind, you're more than happy for people to have the wrong idea. In fact, any trader, I mean, even for myself, I know there's a lot of misinformation about what I do out there. I'm quite cool with that. I don't mind that if people misunderstand what I'm doing and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out there and tell people, no, 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 this is what I do. Why? <laughs> Excuse the last interruption here. This is Tessa. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you love the podcast, please give Chat with Traders the best review you can on whatever platform you're listening from. This will help us to keep the episodes coming. Also, if you haven't subscribed to our email list, please hop on to chatwithtraders.com and click on subscribe so we can keep you posted of information that may be of importance. Thank you. Now back to the chat with our guest. <laughs> uh, my understanding is uh, you're currently running a hedge fund. Yeah, so we we thought so. I've worked with a guy, uh, and we started designing trades together about probably nearly ten years ago now. And we found some some cool strategies which we eventually decided to package up and to put in and start a fund. We we decided to launch that. It was just before COVID, uh, which is not a great time mm -hmm. in terms of being able to go out and sell. So. We uh, we kind of put that on the back burner and now we're, we're kind of relaunching the fund now. So we have a very specific style of trades that we want. So we design strategies with roughly zero correlation to equities, which is extremely hard as the industry itself finds that extremely difficult to get to zero correlation. So we feel that that's a real niche that we can try and exploit if we can design those trades. And funnily enough, the way we do some of those, particularly with the option trades we use, is with some of the old market making techniques. When we see a weakness in a trade that we've designed, often it'll be an old market making, like one of these sort of techniques that I used years ago could reduce that uh, weakness in that trade. Huh, interesting. Um, that's so, what we try. So uh, you're, you're uh, also using some of your order flow strategies with the um, uncorrelated assets that you're looking for? Uh, so not the order first trades at the moment, although I, I would actually like to get, um, if I could automate this, I would definitely put these in because they would classify as non-correlation into the fund uh, because they're manual and I would need to have a bank of traders, which at the moment we don't have. But at some point, I would like to get these strategies in. But no, but there are certain uh, there are certain techniques, certain things that we did as market makers of options back in the day 
that if you know to reduce risk essentially okay oh, this this could happen at this time how can we reduce risk there were certain things that we would learn that we would do um probably be called old-fashioned now but we had to like i said we didn't we weren't able to cross spread across multiple contracts so sometimes it's still amazing like now so my, my partner's a phd in stats he's the quant side of things you know i sort of helped to design the trades he then tests it and usually with a quant aspect you'll get the data for a trade and then you'll you'll essentially go through a process that we don't like which is trying to trying to improve the trade right which is like oh, if i change this and i change that and that can be for a lot of funds that's then generally curve fitting right you end up with something that looks like it's improved but it's not um, we don't like that process so we we try not to do it but what we do instead is uh, i'll often say something like well back in my day sort of thing uh, i think if we did this it would improve that weakness it would reduce that and and then we would test that and and more often than not, that will actually be shown to, to have worked. So in that sense, we're not curve-fitting because we actually kind of created the solution. We saw it. And the number of times that's happened where we have a trade, we like the trade idea, but there's still some sort of weakness in it that we want to improve on. And it's just like, this is what we would have done with that option trade as a market maker. Put that into the thing, test it. Yeah, that, that's helped. So that way we know it's 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 not curve-fitted. We've, we've actually come up with a solution. Again, that's old school. My generation of traders, I was talking to someone yesterday, a son of a friend of mine who was wants to trade. And, and I just said to him, look, learn all the basics yourself. Because when you're only using computers and programs, uh, how do you know if what it's spitting out is wrong? And there's a lot of traders out there, they, option traders, you know, if they're if they were putting in trades into the machine, uh, into their broker platform, how would they know if it was giving them a false equity curve? Um, but those of us that trade on the floor, we needed to know, right? Because we didn't have, we had to do it all in our head. Um, and when our runner would give us our, our uh, position back after maybe 10, 20 trades, he'd come back. We had to look at him and go, no, that's wrong. Give it back to him. That's wrong. We had to know it was wrong. Um, so the, we had to learn that skill set. I still think that's a powerful skill set. I still feel underlying what is actually happening here. What did make this trade work? What didn't make it work? Rather than just, yeah, the ability to code in that is great, but sometimes you can just spit out curve-fitting information, which is not going to help. Uh, how many different uh, types of markets um, are you? Is your hedge fund involved in? Uh, so at the moment, we have seven, eight different types of strategies uh, involved in, and options we have on uh, Nasdaq, S P, and Russell. We have some uh, statistical arbitrage trades, which are pairs ETFs trades. So that they'll be country v country. Uh, we have VIX trades in there at the moment. We have dozens more strategies we want to test but we were trying to raise more money now we we're trying to raise money and start the fund so that we can then go through and test the other trades um essentially what we say to ourselves is we'll trade anything that's exchange traded and liquid so we want a liquid exchange trade, which, which would then give us the ability to grow the fund and then we then around that we'll try and design trades and we just sit around thinking what type of trade in this market could potentially give us zero correlation to equities, roughly? And then we we, we go about yeah, the testing strategies of it. Uh, over what time periods do you look at for calculating correlations between the different markets? And how often do you find yourself needing to change the relative weighting because the correlations change depending on what time frame uh, you're looking at? Yeah, so we're not trading the correlations of the markets we're designing trades that don't have a correlation to the S&P 500 index okay. um so for that or we need, so potentially we could take any any index and try to design something around that and the, the key factor is does this have a you know somewhere between you know minus 0.3 and plus 
0.1 or something like that. So uh, that's what we've done. Now, you know, what's interesting is like we, there, there's some strategies that has been some erosion of profit, which you'd expect over time, right? We, uh, over, but, so, you know, one or two of it, some of the trades that we've actually first designed seven, eight years ago still perform reasonably well. And again, there's certain things about the way we design and trade and try to do that I think helps that to happen. Uh, again, because of we we're proactive in how we create the trades, we're not just searching through data, looking for things that work. We're proactively designing in an old-fashioned way. It probably makes us a little bit harder for for other quants to find what we do. Um, perhaps I don't know. We, we're interested. Some strategies, of course, over time, their performance has dropped. We would expect that. We would always expect we have to design new ones. That's that's part of the game. So the performance might drop. But as we add more strategies, we hope in the future that would increase performance. The key thing is the correlation. Does it stay roughly, you know, around that zero level to S and P five hundred? Yes, it has consistently in in all in all conditions. So if the S and P rallies one month and falls the next, we, we've been about the same zero correlation roughly. So that that's that's the main thing for us because this industry, again, like coming back to the start about uh, more information, there was shouldn't it lead to better outcomes? Uh, I feel that again, the trading skill is getting lost. If you can look at some of even some of the better performing hedge funds, uh, and if people have read even the the book about Renaissance, which is a fantastic performing hedge fund, but a lot of hedge funds, a lot of traders, even good ones, have a PL profile is they make money when equities and risk assets go up and they lose when they go down. I grew up in an era where that that you'd be out of business if that happened to you. As an independent trader trading my own money, as a market maker, we had to make money in all market conditions. There was no um, – I've written a piece recently on LinkedIn about this. We didn't have the, the comfort of saying, yeah, well, we had a bad year, but everybody had a bad year, which is kind of like a common thing now, right? Yeah, we lost, but everybody lost. Like I'd, I'd never taken comfort in that because I've traded so much on my own account. That's never comfort in that. You have to find a way. So I feel that and Morgan Stanley put out some research that the hedge fund industry's correlation to equities, it's just been on an upward curve for the last 10, 15 years. It's now over 80%. Hedge funds now as an industry correlates 80% with equities. Uh, that, that to me, they're not doing their job. Um, and to me, again, it says that people with our skill set that can try and design trades in a different way. I, I think we have edge there. I think we have something of value. Um, irrespective of our performance necessarily, you know, because reducing risk, reducing correlation risk adds value. So we're going to, we, we know, for example, we're going to underperform in bull markets. If the S&P goes up 25%, we're going to underperform that almost every time. But we don't think investors will worry too much about that if we can reduce correlation risk. We tend to make money when the S&P falls and any years where there's reasonable volatility, we should be okay on as well. But reducing correlation risk, I think, is becoming one of the hardest things for investors. And that's a niche that you know we hope we're one of the, you know, the few players in. And I said the skill set required for that is perhaps a little bit different, which is why there's very few hedge funds in that space. So to wrap things up, what do you struggle with most as a trader? I think in the modern world, there looks like there's so many opportunities. And you're constantly hearing about new potential things, whether that's crypto options. Somebody says, oh, crypto options, there's so much to be in there. And you can go down so many rabbit holes. And so, and I did for a while on, on some of those. And you can take up so much time. And I realized that you have, when you have edge somewhere, just keep to that edge. And don't get distracted by other things. Work out what you're good at. Work out what you know and grind that edge as hard as you can. So staying, you know, really trying to stay out of the, 
discussion. And then for a while, yeah, getting involved in too many discussions and that, I, I, I'm not particularly active on social media, things like that. I think it can be pretty bad. I say I was fortunate. I got to learn to trade during a crash. And that really just said to me, you know, that, that idea of can't afford to hold losses, be humble. Every day could be just a disaster. Just I, it really, really helped. So, yeah, I struggle with the, the noise, basically. I think, every, you know, I think it's a common thing for traders, noise, keep away from noise. Uh, I've got distracted when someone says, oh, this, this is happening. And if enough people who you think should be respected are talking about it, I think you can get distracted. Can I find a trade for that? And then you realize, hold on a sec, that was actually nonsense in the first place. Yeah, just keep to your – more often than not now, it's keep to myself and to my my small group around me um, because there's so much distraction. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Have any of your children picked up the trading bug like their father? <laughs> uh, not at the moment, no. My son's very mathematical. Um, which is great, and I, I, he shows it. Sort of, I think at some point he he, he could turn into it, um, but no, which I'm quite happy with. It's a tough industry. I'm not necessarily want my kids to do it. He's he's much smarter than me. He's in a very good career path. Mm-hmm, great. Well, Gary, uh, thank you for coming on Chat with Traders. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Um, I have a couple of websites. So for information about me, GaryNorton.com. Um, nordamethod.com is the scalping method. Uh, I have a free options course as well on learnoptions.net if people want to learn options. Uh, there's a free course there. And there's some books. I've got some books on Amazon that I've written. If people are interested in why they might most likely to fail if they use TA, there's technical analysis exposed. Right. Yeah, it's quite a, a quite a comprehensive book. I just went through it. <laughs> <laughs> great. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. Thank you. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.